How are we doing this evening? Let's go. <laughs> Let's go, row one. How's you guys' day today? Okay. On the count of three, I want you to yell at me what you did. One, two, three. Archery. All I heard was archery. You guys like dominate. That's awesome. Uh, man, man, me and my family had such a blast walking around today, getting to know some of you, lots of you taking time to say hi to my kids, which was awesome. Uh, got some coffee, which was off the hook when swimming. What a great day. Give it up for your staff, too. The staff here at, at camp who just made it an incredible time. So if you have your Bibles, open them up back to John chapter 1. That is where we're, I mean, John chapter 2, that is where we're going to be this evening. So just like the video, and my good friend Megan, who's in the video, talking about the truth of God's word. And I want us to understand that as we walk through this week, that as I have a chance to get to talk to you, that I'm not giving you my best TED talk. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not selling you my opinion. These aren't some big ideas that I just came up with on my own. Everything that we are talking about from the time you arrived on Monday to, to, to the time you leave on Saturday is etched in the very words of God that sits in your laps. And just like in the process of what Megan walked through in that beautiful poem, I want us to review some of its history. Now, it's not about the history, but I think it is important for us to know, just like was described in the video, that what you have in your hands is the very words of God. That it's tested time and persecution. Thousands upon thousands have been killed for its existence. I even think of right now as you and I are sitting here, underground churches in China, where the word of God is banned, sit around in circles, maybe with a few pages, memorizing it, watching it breathe life into them as they sit in the dark, having hope in who Jesus and the word of God is. This is not just a book. The very words of God. So I want us to understand, again, some of its history, that the Old Testament formed and written, inspired by God, by Moses, and would be completed in 400 BC, and it's split up into three different types of teachings. You have the Torah, which is the teachings, the first five books of the Bible. You have the Nevavim, which is the prophets in the Old Testament, and you have the Ketavim, which is the writing, splitting up in these three themes, 39 Old Testament books solidified. And what's so fascinating is as much as you go, well, man, that's, that's the Old Testament. We're people of the New Testament. I flipped the page. It is interesting to note that over 300 times the Old Testament is referenced. More importantly, most of those references are made by Jesus himself from cover to cover. We see that over 300 prophecies from the front, from Genesis chapter one to the end of Malachi, 300, that's a conservative, upwards of 500 prophecies scream the name of Jesus and the one who is to come. Every page of the Old Testament whispers his name. 
Even think of when it says in Matthew 5, 17, when Jesus says, do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I came to fulfill them. Also think of the external support of this book in archaeology. A couple years ago, I had the awesome opportunity to go to Israel with my wife and a group of our closest friends. And I got to go to a place called Caesarea and it's right on the Mediterranean Sea. And if you're familiar with Caesarea at all, there's this guy in your Bible who inspired by the Spirit of God would write a third of your New Testament. His name's Paul. And Paul gives a defense for the gospel to the ruler in that area. His name was Agrippa. And in Caesarea, you can look, and there is a stone that dates back to the time of Paul that talks about Herod Agrippa being the ruler of that time, Paul being imprisoned in this place, that there's archaeological evidence for the faith that you and I believe. This book is used by historians who don't even believe in God as they etch through its pages, seeing that it's historically accurate, end up coming to faith in God. It can be tested and each time found true. These ancient texts, even I think of the the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you're not familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's the book of Isaiah, one of the oldest texts that have been found. It was found by a shepherd boy just like hanging out, I guess watching sheep is boring, never done it before, but I wouldn't want to. But he's just chilling in the desert and he's like throwing rocks in caves and then he drills, what he hears is like a, a, a pot in a cave and he goes in and begins to open up these pots and he finds the book of Isaiah written only a a few hundred years after Jesus walked the earth. And you can go see him, they're on display at a museum called the Book of the Shrine in Israel and I've seen him with my own two eyes. Unreal. And that's just the Old Testament. I think of the New Testament and how it was penned and put together That it wasn't penned by, even as in the video, it wasn't penned by telephone as everyone in the New Testament was either a first-hand walk with Jesus. Like the book of John that we're going through tonight was written by the disciple John who walked intimately with Jesus his entire three years of ministry. I don't know about you, but when I want a first-hand account, I'm going to go to somebody who's there. John being in the very dust of Jesus' sandals as he's right behind her throughout the whole thing. And so many witnesses in each book agreeing with the other in sound theology and sound witness of who God is affirmed by so many believers in wide acceptance. In total, you have 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, written by 40 different authors inspired by the very spirit of God on four different continents, and not a single word contradicts another. There's no other book like it. But why should you care about that? Why does that matter? Because at its core, it is not authored by human inspiration. It's not authored by human enlightenment. It's authored by God himself as proof of you can have 40 different people writing on four different continents uh, prophesying the same thing and it's all found to be true. Only God himself could pull that miracle off. You couldn't put me and my wife who I've been married to for seven years and known for 10 years, put us in two separate rooms to have us write on the same topic and have the same story. There would be differences in each one. 
But as we see these authors come to the same conclusion to who Jesus is, God used his people to pen truth on each page from Genesis chapter one to the end of Revelation. So we need to understand this evening and this week that as we discover what truth is, this isn't me telling you what I think truth is. This isn't me or your counselors telling you this is what we think truth is. It's God himself from his very word speaking to you directly, proclaiming himself to be true. So let's dive in to John. We're gonna be in chapter one, actually. I lied to you. I'm like, we're talking about truth and I lied to you. I said we're in John chapter two. We're in John chapter one, verses 19 through 23. I'm gonna read it and then I'm gonna pray. So follow along with me. John chapter one, verse 19, we'll read to 23. It says this. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And he said, are you the prophet? And he said, no. Then they said to him, who are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Says this, he said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make way straight the path of the Lord, as the Isaiah prophet said. This is God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just pray as we have a time together this evening, as I have an opportunity to teach your word, as we have an opportunity to learn, God, not from human opinion, but God from you. Father, I know some of us might have come up with different preconceived notions on what, what, what we believe the Bible to be. God, I pray that the truth of your words would convict us, God, that we would see truth for what it is, God, that truth originates from your voice. God, may you meet with us this evening. God, we love you so much. And all God's people said, amen. So in John chapter one, verse 19, we have a couple characters that I need to describe to you in order for us to fully grasp what is happening in this text. So it says, this is the testimony of John. Again, not John the disciple. John the disciple is writing about another John named John the Baptist. We talked about him this morning. A guy who was his mission in life from the moment he was born to the moment he died was to proclaim the one who was to come to take away the sins of the world. So John goes out into the wilderness dressed in camel hair, which could not have been comfortable in the slightest, but to each their own. And he goes out into the desert and he's baptizing people. And so these priests are hearing about John the Baptist baptizing people in the name of God. And so they go to him, curious, is John the Baptist the one who the whole Old Testament prophesies about? So they ask him, who are you? Now why would the priests and the Levites even care? Who are they? Well, the priests and the Levites, back in 
Exodus, when Moses frees the people, or say God through Moses frees the Israelites, upwards of a million of them, out of captivity in the land of Egypt. They go, they wander the desert. Through the process of wandering in the desert, God shows up to Moses and gives Moses kind of a a list, uh, a 10 commandments as we might call them. There's actually 613 commandments, that's crazy. But in this process, he also gives them, I want you to create assignments for some of the people. And they're gonna be called priests and Levites. They're set aside for the purpose of knowing my word, of knowing scripture, and being able to communicate my words to the people. So the priests and the Levites who are coming to talk to John have dedicated their entire lives to the study of the Old Testament. Matter of fact, Jewish boys would grow up and they would go to rabbi school and they would memorize the first five books of the Bible. Now you guys only have like a few memory verses. Now imagine like, hey, for extra points, you can memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Be like, sweet, I'm going home. (laughs) I don't blame you, that is insane. But they would have dedicated, these priests and Levites dedicated their life to understanding God's word. Looking for the one who is to come. That's why they ask John, who are you? And specifically, they ask him, are you the prophet? Now this is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18 where God says to Moses that a prophet, one is going to come to lead and speak my words and to guide my people. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we see a very whisper of the name of Jesus, one who is to come to set people free. And so they're curious, are are you, John, that guy? And John says, no. I am come to, to proclaim who that is. And I, and I want us to also grasp the full weight of what is going on in the heads of the priests and the Levites who know their Bible. Again, every page of your own testament whispers the name of Jesus. Jesus just doesn't show up in the genealogy of Matthew chapter one the first book in your New Testament. We see in Genesis chapter three, verse 13, page three of your Bible, that the moment Adam and Eve, we watch it in the opener, right? Adam and Eve up here, they're dancing. I don't know if they actually were dancing in the garden. That should be kind of legit. But they're dancing through the garden, naming all the animals. It's awesome. And then Adam and Eve at the tree and they take the fruit and they eat of it and sin enters the very fabric of creation. And death is introduced to God's creation for the first time. And we see that God speaks the truth of what is to come in Genesis 3, chapter 15. Listen to this, God says this. And I'll put enmity or division between you and the woman, Satan and the woman between your seed and her seed, then he gives a statement about a he, a certain one individual male who's going to come. He, will sh- he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Or it says he will crush you on the head and you will bruise his heel, meaning that one is to come. A man is to come who's going to crush the head of the snake, that sin and death will not have the final say, yet one in that process will be hurt. Again, even in Genesis chapter three, what's going on in the Levites and the priest's minds is who is that to come? 
We see this in Isaiah chapter 53. Mind you, Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus took a single humanly breath. Talk about a shot. Says this in Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he will grow up like a tender shoot and the root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. Kind of reminds me of John chapter one when John's like, he will show up and yet his people whom he created will not receive him. Then Isaiah goes on to describe Jesus again who doesn't show up to the scene physically for 700 more years. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief, like one from men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Again, pierced. Crucifixion in Isaiah's day hadn't even been invented yet. And he's already calling the shot. He was crushed for our iniquities, chastened for our well-being, and through his scourging, we are healed. Isaiah, 700 years before the whipping of Jesus, calls the shot. Guys, this isn't opinion. This isn't a good idea. This is the very words of God. And even I go to the prophet Jeremiah who prophesies a coming king whose rule will have no end. A Jeremiah written 600 years before Jesus takes a humanly breath. Now I want us to understand something too about prophecy. Prophecy is like a big $500 word that just means someone who's able to predict what is to come before it happens. Now it's all like, how many of you like fortune cookies in here? Okay, for the record, fortune cookies taste gross. That's just my personal opinion. But for some reason, we all like them. They're gross. They're disgusting. Unless you like them, then more power to you. We'll pray for you. It'll be all good. There's hope. But in the process, I don't know about you, but like I'll open a, I'll open a fortune cookie. And in my head, I'm like, this isn't going to happen. But there's also like a little bit of me of like, this might happen. Like, I might find a million dollars today. This could happen. Right? But that's not what prophecy is. Where we open up a fortune cookie and it's like, you will make a friend. I'm still waiting for that one to come true for me. Still working on that one. But where it's like, man, you will lay eyes on the one you love. And like all junior high boys are like, finally, you know. <laughs> and it just doesn't happen. I remember uh, like five years ago, it's been in 2017, I'm in a Target bathroom. And I'm in a stall and I look and someone has carved carved, which I don't know why people carve in bathroom stalls. It's like you're, you're having that hard of a time. Like, go see someone. But in the process, they're like carving into the side of this stall wall, and it says, Jesus coming back May 18th, 2017. And I was like, I missed it by six months. Shoot. Right? It just isn't true. It's false. In order to be a prophet, your passing grade isn't 99%. It isn't 90%. For you to be a biblical prophet, your passing grade is 100%. And I think of Jesus himself who would go on to fulfill over 300 prophecies written about himself hundreds of years before he took a humanly breath. 
I know even some would argue, well, no, no, no. See, Matt, just like you said, Jewish boys went to uh, rabbi school and they memorized. Jesus would have known these prophecies. Okay, I'll meet you there. So he just strategically placed himself to fulfill them. I'm going, okay, what what about the prophecy in Malachi chapter 5, verse 2, that prophesies Jesus will be born in Bethlehem? I don't know about you, but my daughters had no say of where they were going to be born. It's like, Clovis community, you're welcome. Like, Jesus in no way had any control over where he would be born, and yet it happens. And Jesus, again, even to fulfill, check this out, even to fulfill eight prophecies, again, Jesus fulfilled over 300, just to fulfill eight, the statistic probability for all you math nerds out there, also math, but math, in order to fulfill eight prophecies, is the probability of 10 to the 17th power. Now let me put that in perspective because I'm not a math guy, I'm a visual learner. This is the probability of Jesus just fulfilling eight. Imagine if we took the entire state of Texas, the entire state of Texas, and we, wow, someone's booing, tough, boo cowboys. But imagine the entire state of Texas and we filled it with silver dollars up to our knees. Silver dollars up to our knees, and we take one silver dollar, we ride a smiley face on it in a helicopter and just close our eyes and throw it into this pile. And then I take you, I'm like, hey, we're gonna go on a ride, I blindfold you, we drop you off in the middle of Texas filled with silver dollars, and then I say, all right, you walk around, and then when you're ready, take the blindfold off and pick up the smiley face silver dollar. You would, there's no way. And Jesus fulfills eight. Not only does he that, he fulfills 300. That every word of your Bible isn't just mere chance, but the fulfillment of God's word and God's word alone. So these prophecies, this Old Testament that would have gone through the mind of the priests and the Levites is found true. And we see how the Old Testament ends in Malachi chapter four where it says this, behold, I'm gonna send you the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. What Malachi is saying is I'm going to bring one who's going to provide a way to have access to God. The whole Old Testament narrative is screaming the name of Jesus to humanity. That is what's going through the mind of the Pharisees. So let's dive back in. In verse 14. Sorry, 24. Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him and said to him, why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? John answered them, I I baptize with water, but among you, one whom you do not know is he who comes after me, whose thong of sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And then check this out. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why is this such a profound statement by John in chapter one, verse 29? As you guys read through, if you have I would highly recommend reading your Old Testament. It's phenomenal. 
All the Bible is phenomenal. But in the Old Testament, we see that when Adam and Eve sin and the law is given, that sin cannot be forgiven or covered over unless by the shedding of innocent blood. And so we see that this law is given and different sacrifices are given that pure spotless lambs are slain for the covering up of sin, a temporary atonement for that moment in order that people can still worship God. And so when John makes this statement in chapter one, verse 29, he's not saying, behold the Lamb of God who's a, just a brief atonement or a, a covering. He says, behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus is going to be the ultimate sacrifice that the whole Old Testament is screaming about, that sin will have no hold anymore. It's not just a covering, but a full taking away. So in short, how did John the Baptist know when he sees Jesus walking down to the water who he is? Why were the priests and the Levites, how would they even be able to think about who he is? Because they knew their Bibles. They didn't just study opinion or sit around in circles or wait for the latest trend. They knew their Bibles. It says this about scripture in 2 Peter 1 verses 19 through 20, listen to this. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do dwell to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now listen, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an human act, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Every single word from cover to cover is breathed by the God of the universe. The God we talked about this morning, who with his breath put stars in the sky, at a word put oceans and made them come alive who put Adam and Eve and created them, who created and knows every hair on your head. He's not just the God who creates and steps back. He creates and then enters in and speaks his very words to you and to me. If this is true, that means the Bible is inspired by God. And if it is inspired by God, that means it's 100% accurate. And if those two things are true, then the Bible has the ultimate authority for what truth is. Not my opinion, not what my friends say. Even when something makes me uncomfortable, if it comes from the word, it's still true. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says this, all scripture, not some, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for the training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed from cover to cover. Let's dive back into our narrative in chapter one, verse 35. This is the next day the Pharisees leave. Jesus is baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends onto Jesus. And now John's Disciples, John the Baptist's disciples begin following Jesus. It says this in verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. 
Just a disciple, just so we're all caught up, is just a, a word that means people who wanted to know and be like John the Baptist because he saw how he did life and they wanted to emulate him. So two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus and as he walked and said, behold the Lamb of God, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas and translated means Peter. Andrew uses this word Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed one one who's been set apart, one who is going to come to save, that they found the one who the whole Old Testament in their context had been speaking about. And then the next day, verse 43, the next day, he being Jesus proposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to Philip, follow me. Now Philip was in Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found the one whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. These men just didn't follow Jesus because he had sign of some kind of charisma. It was like, man, that guy's awesome. He's probably an influencer. I'm gonna tie my coattails to that guy. They tied their Lot with Jesus because Jesus was the one who for centuries past have been, had been proclaimed about who would come to free them from the bonds of sin and death. That every piece of the text whispers the name of God. How many of you in here like reading? Big readers, let's go, let's go. I, I love like when I pick up, if, if I wanna know about Someone famous. So if I wanted to learn about like my wife's hero, Justin Bieber, how would I figure out about who Justin is? Google, Google false. But not everything you believe on the internet is true. But in this process, if I wanted to know that, what would be the best way to go about that? Would I want to pick up a book that was written by one of his friends? No. I'd want to pick up a book that when I look at the bio, it's written by him himself. That is what happens with our Bibles. Penned and written by God himself, describing who he is to you. So what? If this is true, why is this vitally important? Because it means that the Bible confirms the character of God. That even when I'm going through hard times, even when it's difficult, even when it's tough, even when I feel like God is not there, what does the word say about God? It says that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us, that he dwells with creation, that even when I'm not personally feeling like he's there, the truth of the reality that God's word communicates is that he is with you yesterday, today, and forever, that how I feel does not dictate truth. It confirms and reflects the very heart of God, 
that it's not just opinion that God is love, that in his word he writes that he is. Not only that, but we can rest our eternal hopes in the truth of its pages, and that is a firm foundation. In Isaiah 40, verse seven, it says this, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We just saw the, we just witnessed in the video and just explained to you the history of the text that you have in your laps. No human book could have survived centuries of persecution, uh, of book burnings, of you fill in the blank, and yet here you are in 2022, in July, in this chapel with the very words of God in your laps. And it proves if those things are true, if this is the very words of God, spanning the test of time for generations, it also means something very applicable to you and to me. Look at me. It means that you and I don't get to dictate things that are true within the Bible and things that are not true based on how we feel. I'm gonna say that again. We don't get to dictate on my own what truth is. Just because something in the Bible makes me uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not true. I think of Thomas Jefferson. If you ever go visit Thomas Jefferson's Bible in Washington, D.C., it's fascinating and also really sad. (laughs) If you go and if you were to look it up, Thomas Jefferson has taken his entire Bible and has cut out every single miracle because he didn't believe they could happen. If that's true, if miracles of Jesus couldn't happen, what is our faith based on if the resurrection never took place? As even Paul would pen, if the resurrection never took place, you and I are to be pitied above all men and women. But if it did take place, then our entire lives are a game changer. That he has victory over death. You and I get to take every word as truth. The beautiful thing is you can come to God's word and even wrestle through it and have a hard time with it, but at the end of the day, it is proven true. In Proverbs 30, verses five and six, it says, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be found a liar. I even think of Satan and how Satan likes to use God's words and just twist it just a little bit. You need to understand that you and I aren't the arbiters of truth that it's not your truth and my truth, it's God's truth or bust. Every word proclaims his name. The whole thing from cover to cover proclaims who Jesus is. And I want us to also understand we don't get saved by the Bible. The Bible doesn't save you. You memorizing every single memory verse this week doesn't save you but the person who every page is written about does. Every page whispers his name, screams his name. From generations past to generations past you, that this Bible and the word of God stands for eternity. My dad growing up would always say, Matt, two things last forever, the souls of men and women and God's word. This week we're not looking at opinion to discover what truth is. We're going to the very source, 
God's word himself penned for you and for me, that we might understand the beautiful character of who God is, that you and I are not the arbiters of truth, that it's not our truth, it's God's truth or nothing, even if it makes us uncomfortable, even when it's hard, even we have to wrestle with it. I wrestle with it, just gonna be honest. There are things in the Bible that when I look at them, I kind of think, ah, as truth hits us, it's like light, I'm kind of embarrassed, but God is so loving that he would light those areas of our life and go, look at what you're holding onto that has no substance, that has no truth, that's robbing you of life. I have more for you. The very words of God, pen for you, pen for me, that we might have a God who deeply desires for you to know him. Through God's word, you can know who God is. What a loving God, all-powerful, all holy, almighty, and yet through his word screams, but I wanna be known and I want you to know me through the power of my son Jesus, amen? Amen, Amen. let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. This isn't just a book, this isn't just opinion. God, this is your word, you've breathed every sentence, stanza, period, God. It is authoritative for our entire lives. Father, my prayer, God, is that through it this week that you would illuminate areas in our life through the truth of your word that are not lined up with you. And as hard as that might be, God, I pray that we would feel the warm embrace of your grace. God, I pray for those in this room who are new to the Bible and it can seem intimidating God, I pray that you soften our hearts and realize that from cover to cover, you're screaming who you are, who your son is, who we are, and that we are more loved than we could ever imagine. God, we give you all these things, and all God's people said, amen.